Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for dwelling with us. We thank you that your presence fills this place. And now we just ask that you would help us to be good listeners, um, give us attention, help us to stay awake, and give us soft and receptive hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everybody. If you Google the word magnify, uh, you'll see a couple different but related definitions. The first is this, to make something appear larger than it is. So, back in the 1900s, when I was a kid, uh, there was one Christmas when my mom got my dad a magnifying glass. Who here has a magnifying glass in their house? Really? I was about to say I didn't think so, but that's, that's awesome. <laughs> My dad, and maybe your dad too, Treven, uh, would spend his mornings and also the evenings sometimes reading the newspaper, like the print form. And so, to save his eyes, my mom got him a magnifying glass. And she always had great taste, and so she bought a particularly slick-looking magnifying glass from this store called Brookstone. Uh, some of you might remember that store. I don't know if it still exists. But I thought this magnifying glass was the coolest thing ever. And so my dad used it to read the paper. Uh, and from time to time, I would borrow it. I would use it for other purposes, which may or may not have included burning holes in things, but never bugs, you know, nothing creepy or sociopathic like that. Uh, but this simple little tool made things bigger. You know, it enlarged the words that my dad read, and when I held it up to the sun, it concentrated and amplified the power of the sun. It magnified the next definition is this, to increase or exaggerate the importance or effect of. And think of the things that get magnified or exaggerated, especially during the holidays. You know, the decoration, the pageantry, the materialism and consumerism, holiday traditions and movies, red Starbucks cups. The importance of these things is exaggerated. We almost feel like Christmas is incomplete without them. So they are magnified. Like, I think of how brand names get magnified, like Nike, Apple, Louis Vuitton, Tesla. I'm 
so glad the hype is dead and the fad is out, but remember when everyone was just really obsessed with Supreme and spending absurd amounts of money on things. Um, anyone that had that little red label was sudden, anything that had that was, was suddenly holy, right? And anyone who bought into it might as well have said, my soul magnifies Supreme. Last week, I saw multiple sweatshirts in our community emblazoned with the name Blackpink. You would say, my sweatshirt magnifies Blackpink. Maybe your soul magnifies Blackpink. I don't know. Kind of hope not. Uh, But the word magnify actually has an older and deeper meaning. Uh, The third definition you'll find in the Oxford Dictionary is to praise, glorify, or extol. Uh, this comes from the Latin word magnifico, from the root manus, meaning great. Think of the word magnificent, or if you're Sam back there, you might be thinking of chess grandmaster Magnus Carlsen. I threw that in just for Sam. His name literally means great, which sounds kind of arrogant. But I, if you're a grandmaster, I guess you must be pretty good at chess. Uh, the Greek word, though, here used in, in, in Luke's gospel is megaluno which again means to declare great, to magnify, to praise. So at the start of today's text, Mary proclaims, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is why this hymn or this song of Mary is called the Magnificat. So the question today, my friends, is what do we magnify? And what gets magnified in our lives? What does, your, what does our soul magnify? And attached to that, what is it forming us into? Our lives are essentially one big magnifying glass. They magnify something or someone. And through the course of this talk, hopefully we'll unpack and discover what that might be for each and every one of us. Uh, Today's teaching has three movements. If you're taking notes, you might write these down. First, magnification. Second movement, soul and spirit. And then third movement, We'll call that two kinds of people. So three movements that get at this overarching thematic question. What or who do you magnify? What or who do you make large or great in your life? What or who do you praise and extol? And what is the result? What kind of person are we becoming? Are we becoming people of joy, peace, and love? We've touched on magnification, and we'll continue to get at this theme in our grand question. But in order to do that, we need to talk briefly about soul and spirit. Again, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, it's tempting to see words like soul and spirit, and just think that, you know, they're just these poetic Christian terms that loosely mean the same thing, maybe. Or or maybe Luke, the author, was just trying to avoid being repetitive with his words. Um, But let me just say that in the Bible, every detail is actually really important and significant. There there are no throwaways. So we're going to do a quick word study. It's going to get a little Bible nerdy in here. Uh, But be patient. It's important. Nudge your neighbor. Keep them awake. And just stick with me for a bit. Soul and spirit. First, soul. Who here grew up with the understanding that your soul is some kind of spirit ghost that just floats off into heaven when your physical body dies. I mean, that's what I thought. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, Now, I mean, that's kind of part of it, but there's actually a lot more to it. In the words of Scottish poet and preacher George MacDonald, 
We don't have a soul. We are a soul. Just chew on that for a little while. Uh, the word soul here in Luke is psuche. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Psuche. Great, great. Uh, it means breath or spirit. But also, it means the seat of your feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. Philosopher Dallas Willard, because I always quote him, writes, The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. It's the life center of the human being, the deepest level of life and power in us. And so if anyone asks, just tell them that. In simpler terms, our soul is the deepest core essence of who we are. This is why we say things like he or she has soul. When Treven plays a sick drum solo, we say he's, he's got soul. You know, we're, we're not describing their ghost form that will float off into the afterlife when they die. We're describing something deep inside of them that comes out and is expressed in character or style or emotion or aura. Uh, we describe a song as soulful when it communicates something deeply emotional and heartfelt. And so in the context of Mary's song here, we can read it as Mary's deepest, innermost being, all of her feelings, desires, and affections magnify, the praise or glorify the Lord. So she's got soul, and it magnifies God. Now, the next word is spirit. The Greek word used here is pneuma, which means, guess what, breath or spirit. And you're like, isn't that what soul was? There's a distinction it's a little different, and this is the distinction. Pneuma refers more to the rational soul, mental disposition, like the rational spirit, or the power by which we feel, think, and decide. Again, Willard puts it this way, the capacity for volition and the acts of willing in which it is exercised form the spirit in man. In simpler terms. So our spirit is the part of us that wills and chooses. And what it chooses is kind of influenced by our thoughts and our feelings. But we have free will. That's a gift from God. And our spirit is what chooses. Sometimes we choose good and sometimes we choose bad. So when Mary says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, she is exercising her will. She is choosing and willing to rejoice. Now, why is this understanding of soul and spirit so important? It's important because it captures the multiple dimensions and the gravity and depth of Mary's worship. When she magnifies and, she, and rejoices, she magnifies and rejoices with all of her deepest being and feeling, but also her will. It's two-part. And we experience this too. You know, sometimes we do something because it feels good and natural. Like, I can eat a lot of chocolate chip cookies. You can drink a lot of boba because it feels good and natural. Other times... We have to will ourselves to do something. I have to will myself to stop eating cookies. I have to will myself to take out the trash. But the fact is, we need both feeling and will. For example, in love, in relationships, we need to operate from both feeling and will. The other week, someone in this community came up to me, I won't say who, but only that this person was young and hopelessly in love. They came up to me, uh, there is this like, strange glow about them, an aura, you might say. And, and they said this, they were like, Brooks, 
I'm just really feeling the joy of relationship and love right now. And I was like, aww. And then they get on. Like, when I'm around my significant other, I just feel, ah. When I see my friend and their significant other, I also just feel, ah, it's so beautiful. Love is, is beautiful. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, I am really happy for you. And then I wanted to say, just wait until you've been together for five or 10 years, but I didn't. Uh, I just let our friend bask in this blissful mixture of joy and innocent naivete. Uh, but sooner or later, we all realize that lovey-dovey feelings cannot ever sustain a relationship. Feelings will only carry you so far. Because true love is not a feeling, it's action and, and covenant. When you've been with your partner through ups and downs, past the honeymoon period, you'll find that love requires work and a ton of it. You'll find that you can't rely on feelings to motivate your love. You'll find that you need to exercise your will. You have to will yourself to act out love and to stay committed. And from this, you'll actually see a deeper and more beautiful love emerge. When I do the dishes and the laundry at home, it doesn't feel romantic at all. And acts of service are not my love language. I'm working on that. But I do it because that is Amanda's love language. And I am making the choice and willing myself to do it. Just like I'm going to do when I get home today. So to get back to the matter at hand, there are both components in Mary's worship. Soul and spirit. Deepest feeling and also willful choice. Mary magnifies God and rejoices with her whole entire being. Not just the part of her that feels like it. Now, the downfall of our culture, which is a feelings-based culture, is that we only think things are authentic and real when we feel it or, or when they come naturally, right? But if I decide I want to be a marathon runner and I get outside and I just feel completely winded after two miles, it doesn't mean that marathon running isn't for me. It just means that I have to will myself to train first. If I hate flossing my teeth every night, it doesn't mean that flossing is getting in the way of me being true to myself. Now, when it comes to spiritual growth, I want to be clear that ultimately God does the heavy lifting. You know, when we receive Jesus into our lives, the Holy Spirit is the one who, over time, changes our hearts. But... He doesn't do it against our will. And so we partner with him and we work with him when we choose and will ourselves to follow him. And as we do so, by his grace, he helps us, he strengthens us, and he transforms us. If we're honest, most of us never feel like reading the Bible or praying, right? A lot of us resist Sabbath, we resist things like silence and solitude. Now, does this mean that these things are not for us? Are we being inauthentic when we do them? Absolutely not. But do we begin to grow into our truest selves as we do these things that we don't feel like doing at first? Yes, absolutely. Now, this will lead down a whole rabbit hole that is for another teaching. Uh, but here's my point. We tend to magnify the things that feel natural to us. 
we tend to magnify the things that play to our worldly desires and our fleshly desires, as well as our insecurities and our fears. And so we return to today's refrain. The big question, who or what do we magnify? What gets magnified in our lives? And what is it forming us into? People of joy, peace, and love, or the opposite of those things? Again, let that just float in your mind as we enter into our third movement. I'll title it, Two Kinds of People. Throughout Mary's song here, there are two kinds of people described. They're the humble and the proud. She states, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now contrast that with he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. So what it sounds like is that the humble enjoy blessing and that the proud do not. It looks like the humble, the weak, and the hungry are blessed. And Jesus would echo this message 30 years later in the Beatitudes. On the other hand, it appears that the proud and the mighty are not blessed. Now, does this mean that God withholds blessing from the proud? I mean, we see good things go well for for prideful, arrogant people all the time. Or could it possibly mean that no matter how many good things happen for the proud, none of them ever feel like blessing? Mary, who is of humble estate, is praising God and giving thanks for blessing. She, in her lowly status, magnifies God. What do prideful people tend to magnify? Let's do a little compare and contrast. Humble people tend to magnify and express gratitude. For them, everything is a gift. And as a result, they see and experience mercy and grace often. Prideful people tend to express and magnify entitlement. For them, everything they have or gained is something they think they've earned or achieved or something they deserve. And so for them, nothing is a gift. And as a result, they often don't see and experience mercy and grace. It's really sad. And this is why both Peter and James quote Proverbs and write, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, the sun can shine on the prideful, but they will never enjoy it. And so humble people experience abundance and wealth, even if they actually have very little. While prideful people only experience lack, scarcity, and discontent. Now, they can have it all, but still feel unsatisfied and empty. Humble people see what they have with gratitude, while prideful people are always fixated on, they magnify what they do not have. They're never full. When my little brothers were a lot younger, uh, every Christmas would start with joyful anticipation, with an end in bickering, jealousy, and sometimes tears. You know, they would open their presents, and they would get a lot of presents, uh, but as they each opened their gifts, they would keep count. And by the end of it all, we would hear, well, I have this many presents, 
But why does he have that many? I have 15, but he has 16. It's not fair. Always fixated on what they didn't have. Always magnifying their lack, the insufficiency, or what they perceive as injustice. And always magnifying entitlement and never gratitude. Thankfully, they've grown past that stage. Um, Now, humble people tend to magnify others. Prideful people tend to magnify themselves. Humble people make time and space for others. They have margin for people and are usually interruptible. They're quick to be at the service of others. Prideful people have no time and space for others. They're stuck in their own lives, on their own timetables and agendas, in their own busyness. They are not interruptible, and they are rarely truly present and available for others, let alone ready to serve others. Their own lives and their own goals are just far too important. Humble people are quick to give attention and honor to others. Prideful people are quick to call attention to themselves and or they're frustrated when the attention is not on them. Humble people tend to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Prideful people tend to be loud and you don't even have to speak loudly to be a loud person. Humble people are quick to credit others and to encourage others. Prideful people are quick to credit themselves and also quick to be down on themselves, ironically. Humble people are not self-pitying and self-deprecating. Prideful people tend to be both. You know, we can be full of ourselves and our status or our achievements. That's obviously pride. But pride also shows itself in a reverse format. You know, we can be self-pitying and self-deprecating, and that's still pride because we're still at the center. We're still the focus while God and others fade into the background. And so we must not mistake humility and self-deprecation. Lastly, humble people tend to magnify God, which is what we see with Mary. Prideful people, again, tend to magnify themselves. Whether things are going well for them or terribly for them, they always magnify themselves. So in sum, humble people magnify joy. Prideful people magnify joylessness. And you have to wonder, what would Mary have magnified? What would she have fixated on or focused on if she were a prideful person? And not someone who, who rejoices in her humble status. If you think about it, she had a lot that she could have worried and stressed about. You know, if she were focused on her immediate circumstances without any vision for, for God's promise and kingdom, she would magnify very different things. She would magnify and fixate on the fact that she was a Jew living under Roman oppression and how terrible that was. She would magnify the fact that she was somehow pregnant before marriage, even though she was betrothed to Joseph. And then now she would have to explain all of this to him. You know, she would magnify the fact that Joseph could easily divorce her now and how all of her people and society would then shun her and cast her out and how her life would be a complete mess. At that time, to be pregnant and unmarried would have ruined your life worse. You could have been stoned for adultery. But instead, she magnifies God. And as a result, she can see and experience blessing. She has joy. She has the greatest joy. And here we come full circle. Those who magnify God are most blessed. And by that, they are the ones whose eyes are opened to blessing. 
Those who magnify God have their attention ready and focused on what God has done and is doing in their lives. They are quick to perceive and receive mercy and grace. A constant posture of gratitude lets them enjoy all that God gives and all the ways in which he loves. For them, everything is a gift. And this posture also lets them accept the difficult circumstances, the trials and the suffering that comes with life because they are assured of God's character and promise. They've just seen it too much to deny it. So now we can finally return to the original question. What or who do we magnify? What gets magnified in our lives? And what is it forming us into? A person of joy, peace, and love, or the opposite? As we said earlier, we tend to magnify the things that feel natural to us, whether that be our interests, our job, our brand names, our favorite K-pop star. We tend to magnify the things that play to our worldly and fleshly desires, as well as our insecurities and fears. And you know what else comes really natural to us? Unfortunately, it's not humility, if we're honest. As sinful people, pride comes really natural to us. Self-centeredness comes really natural to us. It feels natural and good for me to magnify myself. You know, you could argue that, serpent, or that the serpent got Eve to disobey God simply by magnifying her. Satan tempts Jesus in the desert by essentially trying to get him to magnify himself over God. Magnifying ourselves comes naturally to us. And the enemy preys on this. Just think of all the tools that we have to focus and fixate on ourselves. Mirrors and selfie mode. You know, the social media trend nowadays seems to be nothing more than self-magnification. Selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie. Usually with some pretty cringy self-magnifying captions. And even when we scroll through looking at other people's accounts, you know, what are we fixating on? A lot of times we fixate on what they have that we don't. How they look this good and we don't. And so we fixate on our lack. We're magnifying what we don't have. And so we're still magnifying ourselves. We have endless amounts of ways to magnify ourselves. Our image and the clothes that we wear tend to serve this purpose. Our jobs, professions, hobbies, and achievements get used to serve the same purpose. Look at this image that I have carefully and meticulously created. Look at the brands that I can afford. Look at this perfect outfit that I put together. Look at this six pack that I worked out so hard to get. And you drive down I-5 and you see loads of bumper stickers. We are the country of bumper stickers. Which is just another way to say, look at me. My soul, and now my car, magnifies me. Friends, what is this self-centeredness doing to us? Is it bringing us joy? Is it forming us into people who can have and spread joy? Or is it just fueling a constant rap race? Fueling constant comparison and envy? It's definitely not making us people of love. We tend to magnify ourselves over others. This is what comes naturally to us. Think of the conversations that you have. What percentage of it is about you and what percentage of it is about the other person? How often do we ask questions to really learn more about the other person? And notice how we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us. 
We call it chemistry, and it is, and it's not necessarily a bad thing at all. But it's also just easier. And we, we don't have to try as hard to invest in learning about the other person. And what is this doing to us? Is it, is it leading us to become loving people? Is it leading us into deep, loving relationships in which we grow and mature? Or is it just fanning feelings and, and, and making us feel good? Do we ever get to experience the joy of loving others and giving ourselves fully to others? And we talked about this two weeks ago, but it's natural for us to magnify the negative over the positive. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had that go like this. I'll be like, wow, it looks like God is doing some really amazing things in your life right now. But the response will be like, well, yeah, maybe, but I really wish he would do this for me. Or I really wish he would do that in some other way. Now, this isn't to deny reality or to belittle the real and difficult things that we all go through. But for some people, no matter how many things go right, they only focus on the bad. They choose to magnify the bad. Maybe it's just pessimism, but again, pride blinds us from gratitude. Nothing is a gift and nothing is ever enough. Sometimes I talk to people and it's just busyness. This is all that gets magnified. They only talk about how busy they are, what they should be taking care of, and, and then they're always in a hurry. And, and very quickly, I get the sense that they'd rather be doing something else than talking to me. Lastly, we tend to magnify ourselves and demagnify God. We make him so small, and we give him so little room to work in our lives. And yet we say things like, well, I don't really see an experience in my life. I'm sorry, but most of the time, we've chosen to keep him out. And don't get me wrong, you know, there are other reasons why we experience absence sometimes. But by and large, this is at the root. We've chosen to keep God at a distance or completely out. Does your soul magnify the presence and work of God in your life? Does your spirit look for his hand and then rejoice? Is your attention drawn to, but also, do you intentionally draw your attention to him? And this is why understanding soul and spirit is so necessary. We tend to feel one thing, but we have to will the other. But over time, as God changes our hearts, the thing we will becomes the thing we feel. Self-magnification, these are the things that come naturally to us. That is, until we say yes to Jesus, until we practice the way of Jesus, learn the way of his love, and undergo constant transformation under the Spirit. This is why spiritual teacher and writer Ruth Haley Barton says, the best thing any of us can bring to leadership is our own transforming selves. And she talks about leadership, but this really applies to all of life. The best give you can give someone this Christmas or anytime is your transforming self at the hands of Jesus. And friends, I don't don't just say this because I'm a pastor. But life with Jesus, a life of faith, is actually a ton of fun. It's, it's incredibly exciting to get to do life with the God of the universe, to be a part of his story, to look for his presence, to spend every moment seeking out and catching just glimpses of that glory. 
It's exciting to practice faith and then experience his faithfulness. The sad thing is that most of us never experience that fun, that wonder, and that amazement because we just refuse to structure our lives in a way that makes any room for it at all. We live in a way that leaves little room for faith, little room for wonder and possibility, and as a, root, as a result, very little room for fun, very little room for joy. And so we settle for extremely boring lives with Jesus. But friends, to borrow an idea from C.S. Lewis, God is not tame. He isn't just some keeper of rules in the sky. God is wild. He's amazing. And he has come down to us and he invites us to be a part of his wild and amazing story. We cannot alter the state of our souls. We can't just generate feelings and desires for God. But we can act with our spirit. We can intentionally choose to arrange our lives in a way that makes space for us to see and experience God. We can choose to pay attention. We can live in a countercultural way in the midst of our current culture of distraction by simply paying attention. And so to conclude today's application is incredibly simple. Magnify God. Take steps towards arranging your days in a way that magnifies God. Like, I dare you, take the spotlight off of yourself. Magnify God. Here are just some really simple steps to get started. First, simply practice gratitude in an intentional way. End your day with gratitude. Keep a gratitude journal. Share gratitude with friends. In your community groups, we have, we have a specific time where we go around and share gratitude. It probably felt unnatural at first, but most things do until it becomes habit. Practice giving thanks to God for the small things and the big things. Because as we do, we are cultivating an eye for seeing him in action. Second, start and end your day with God. It doesn't have to be a lot of time. It's a well-known fact that we are most influenced and formed by the things we start and end our day with. And so if we start our days on our phones and then end our days on our phones, is it any wonder that so much of our lives are characterized by distraction, discontent, and addiction? So take an active step to change that. If I want to have my eyes ready to see Jesus, and if I want to be changed by Jesus, then it would probably be a good idea to start and end my day with Jesus. And just start with like five minutes of prayer by, by praying the Lord's Prayer in the morning. And then end your day with five minutes of prayer again, or with a psalm, or even a verse. If these things are already a part of your life, that's awesome. Take it a step further. If you already start and end your day with God, that's great. Spend more time with Him. Take Sabbath seriously. If you've already fallen off the horse since our Sabbath series, that's okay. Just get back up and try again. Recommit or kick it up a notch. Spend time in his word with the intention of knowing him relationally. Spend time in silence with him to cultivate an ear for his voice. And do these things with this goal, knowing Jesus. The end goal 
is not to say, well, Pastor Brooks, I've prayed, I've read, I've practiced Sabbath. I mean, you can do all of these things and still miss the point. The end goal is relationship, fellowship, and communion with Jesus. Seek him with your intention and will and trust that as you do so, he will give grace. Invite him in and trust that the Holy Spirit will do amazing things in your heart. Let him transform you from the inside out by taking an active and intentional step of will. And as you undergo this slow, subtle, and sometimes not so subtle process, you will see him more and more. You will experience him more and more. More and more, wonder will return to your life because you've made space for it. More and more, you will learn true love and become a person of love. More and more, you will experience a strange peace that surpasses understanding. Not to say that you'll be numb to the troubles of the world, but you will begin to be a person of peace in the midst of that. More and more, joy will become a real possibility. You'll become someone who has joy and then can spread joy. You will know blessing, not because you'll be more blessed because you do these things, but because by doing these things, you will become someone who can see blessing. Friends, Mary's blessing is the same as our blessing. It's the promise of the coming Messiah and its fulfillment. Both Mary and we get to enjoy the blessing of a promised kept. The blessing of Jesus who has come and will come again. Now I know I'm going a little long, so thank you for your patience, but I want to end with this verse out of Psalm 16 because it has been an anchor for me and Amanda through this crazy year that we had. And I just want to read verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I'll read that one more time. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken be shaken. In this Advent season, as we look towards Jesus' second coming in full, practice his presence now, because he is present now. Set the Lord before you. Make sure he's always in view, always in front of you. Make sure your eye is on him in every moment of every day. And let us sing with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, you have come, and you will come again. But we also know that your spirit 
is very real and very present with us now. And so we ask that you would turn our eyes to you. We pray that we would focus on you, fixate on you, and magnify you with all that we are. Not just the parts of us that feel like it, but all that we are. And as we do so, would you open our eyes to see blessing? Would you open our eyes to joy? And would joy be a reality in all of our lives as we look to you, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen.